campuses in this country today uh, are afflicted with uh, progressive ideology, and it often shuts out uh, opposing views. So I felt there was a real need, not only for an antidote to views that I think are antithetical to American liberty and to American history, as I understand it, uh, but that there was also a need just to uh, open the eyes of, of, of students, give them the ammunition that they need to challenge their progressive professors. That was the voice of Lawrence W. Reed. Larry Reed is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He's the past president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, Michigan. And he is also our guest this week on Radio Free Acton. Hi again, everybody. Welcome to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's uh, my pleasure to be your host here on the podcast. And as I said, Larry Reed will be our guest. Uh, we've got a great interview with him coming up in just a few minutes. First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the organizations that he has been president of over the last, oh, 25 years or so. Uh, Larry Reed has uh, been president of both the Foundation for Economic Education and the Mackinac Center. Let's t- take a look at the Mackinac Center, first of all, because they are, uh, first of all, our co-sponsors for the event that brought Larry Reed here to the Acton building. He was part of the Acton Lecture Series, talking about his uh, latest uh, book uh, where, that he uh, served as editor of, in this case, uh, Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. Fantastic uh, book. Uh, it, it's not, I, I was going to say a fantastic little book. It's not a little book. It's a 52-chapter book, each chapter uh, taking on one of the myths that progressivism promotes and does a fantastic job of refuting and challenging a lot of the dogma that progressives will uh, just uh, accept as fact. Uh, Larry Reed, uh, as I said, president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy for 20 years. Mackinac is a nonpartisan research and educational institute. They are a state policy think tank. So they are dedicated to uh, improving the quality of life for Michigan citizens by promoting sound solutions to state and local policy questions. Michigan, for many years, was dominated by, uh, I, I guess you could say, a center-left uh, political consensus. Uh, Michigan, you know, of course, is the home of Detroit, and for many years, the big three automakers uh, and the uh, the unions uh, that uh, dominated Detroit and its politics exercised huge influence in our state capital as well. And so there had developed a, a belief, I suppose, that uh, government intervention is just kind of the default solution for a lot of problems that we face and a lot of uh, circumstances in society. Mackinac gave voice to the other side, and uh, they have really advanced the free market uh, philosophy here in the state of Michigan, and they've done a fantastic job of it. If you want to uh, know what a fine state policy think tank looks like, head over to Mackinac.org, M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C dot org. Uh, Larry Reed, also the president, current president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. And if you uh, haven't heard of FEE before, uh, you should know that they are the granddaddy of the free market movement in the United States. They're the oldest free market organization in this country, founded in the wake of World War II, uh, 1946, by Leonard Reed to study and advance the freedom philosophy. They're working to build a world where ideas of liberty are familiar and also credible to the rising generation, a fantastic mission, a fantastic organization led by a great guy. Uh, if you want to check out Fee online, fee.org, F-E-E dot org. 
Well, the events calendar has drawn to a close for the year 2015 here at the Acton Building in our Mark Murray Auditorium. We've had a very busy year, tons of events, and uh, we're taking a little break around the Christmas holiday. And uh, we'll be right back at it, though, uh, as we kick off 2016 with the Acton Film Series, screening the documentary Dog Days uh, on January 14th. That's a Thursday night, 6.30, uh, doors open, 7 p.m. screen time. If you haven't heard of Dog Days, it's a documentary following the micro-entrepreneurial world of street vending in Washington, D.C., which is not known as a business-friendly locale, necessarily. Uh, Dog Days looks at uh, two uh, entrepreneurs who are challenging the status quo, trying to shake up the world of street vending in Washington, D.C., providing alternatives to just hot dogs. And it shows the struggles that they have to go through to just get that business up and running. Can they support a family? Can they make their business a sustainable enterprise? Can they uh, manage to get through the process of D.C.'s bureaucracy? All those questions are looked at in this movie, and uh, we hope you'll join us for the screening of Dog Days here at the Acton Building in our Mark Murray Auditorium. That'll be taking place once again January 14th. That's a Thursday night, January 14th, 2016. Doors open at 6.30 p.m. We'll roll the film at 7. Tickets $12. You get a beverage. You get snacks. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've got popcorn for the movie uh, that evening. And we hope to see you there January 14th uh, for Dog Days at the Mark Murray Auditorium here in the Acton Building. Well, I am pleased to be joined today on Radio Free Acton by a good friend of the Acton Institute. Uh, Lawrence Reed is with us today. Larry is president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He's also past president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, uh, the organization that helped to bring him here today and helped uh, stage an Acton Lecture Series event with us today. And uh, Larry, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Mark. And I got to say, if if you had to choose two organizations to be president of, that's a pretty solid one-two punch there with Fee and with Mackinac. Mackinac is a great organization as well. Well, thank you. I'm very proud of them both, very proud of their uh, long history, and delighted to be here with another think tank that I enjoy so much and appreciate greatly, and that is Acton, the uh, Acton Institute. I, I was thinking we could see if we could get uh, you know Father Robert Sirico to take a little leave of absence and, and kind of slide you into the president's position there. We could get the trifecta for you. Hey, okay. I think that would be pretty impressive. That would fulfill my, or complete my resume. Yeah, you could you could retire then, but we don't really want you to do that, I guess. Uh, you're here today talking uh, as part of, as I said, part of the Acton Lecture Series and uh, talking about a book that you recently edited together. You didn't write the whole thing there. I'm sure you wrote portions of it, but uh, you've, you've collected a, a, a series of essays, uh, and the, the title of the book is Excuse Me, Professor, great title, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. Um, 52 chapters in here, each one dealing with a myth of progressivism, and um, I, I suppose I've been told many times there are no stupid questions, <laughs> but th- this next question, the first question really, it, it might be considered at least at least kind of dumb and obvious, but why did you write this book? <laughs> Campuses in this country today uh, are afflicted with uh, progressive ideology, and it often shuts out uh, opposing views. So I felt there was a real need not only for an antidote to views that I think are antithetical to American liberty and to American history, as I understand it, uh, but that there was also a need just to uh, open the eyes of, of, of students, give them the ammunition that they need to challenge their progressive professors. Let's let's talk about at least a, a couple of these myths here, and I, I'm just going to pick one 
kind of I, I picked one kind of at random, not really at random out of the book, but it, it's a little topical. We just, of course, had uh, a collection of, of our esteemed world leadership gathering in Paris to save us all from the threat of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, which which leads me to to the chapter titled uh, or, or the, the, the chapter that deals with the subject of are we dest- we are destroying our planet. Yes. Uh, you say that's a progressive myth. Uh, explain. Uh, it is. Although we don't deal uh, to any great degree with the global warming issue, per se, we do take on this idea that uh, capitalism, uh, free markets cause environmental destruction, that the environment is going to hell in a handbasket and more government regulation is needed to address that. Uh, that particular chapter, written by another author, uh, points out some important indices that clearly show the American environment is uh, far better today than it was 100 years ago. And that wasn't entirely because of regulation. Some people like to say, oh, well, it was the EPA that did that for us. There was a steady decline in uh, particulates in the atmosphere, in uh, pollution, in the water, uh, and so forth, uh, well before uh, heavy government regulation came into play. And by and large, uh, in the first place, what pollution we had was usually the result of the collective ownership of some resource. If you and I own something privately, we tend to take pretty good care of it. Plenty of exceptions, but by and large, if it's owned privately, it will be taken care of, and you have an opportunity to go to the to a, to a court if somebody else dumps waste or, or ruins your property. And so the answer to a lot of environmental uh, problems, I think, is a more rigorous enforcement of property rights, not more regulation from heavy-handed bureaucrats. And it, it should be noted, too, that if you look around the world, the cleanest countries are usually the free countries, the countries with more of a market-oriented economy rather than your command economy, uh, command and control type societies. That's right. And if you try to impose upon poor economies that are just beginning to industrialize, if you try to impose upon them draconian uh, anti-pollution regulations, chances are you would prevent them from ever developing, ever uh, accumulating the kind of resources that would allow them to clean up and deal with environmental uh, issues and that that leads to another progressive myth, one that you talked a, a little bit about today in your uh, lecture, uh, which is uh, sort of the imposing the good that results from a free society on a less developed society in advance of it actually happening on its own. And you talked about the minimum wage. Yeah, uh, it, 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 the 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 minimum wage it, it's it's obviously a well intentioned. Uh, a well-intentioned policy proposal. Uh, obviously, it's better for a person to make $15 an hour than uh, $9 an hour. But um, what is the result of the minimum wage? What happens if you decide that because everybody else is, is, is well off, we need to make this lower, this, this class of workers who are in, lower on the pay scale better off too by government fiat? The minimum wage is a classic case of where good intentions aren't enough. It's not enough to simply say, oh, everybody should make $15 an hour, no matter what they do, no matter how needed their services may be. Uh, uh, we'll just decree it, and, and then we'll walk away from it. The fact is, as any economist worth his salt will tell you, that there are jobs, there are people who are not worth $15 an hour yet. It may be because of lack of experience, lack of skills, any number of factors. But if, if somebody uh, is only worth, say, $10 an hour to an employer and you pass a law that says nobody can pay him less than 15 no employer is going to say, oh, that's all right. I'll hire him anyway and just eat the difference and, and uh, go broke if, uh, uh, you know, just to help people out. 
they can't do that. So they, uh, the, the practical effect of a minimum wage is to price a whole class of people out of employment altogether. And it tragically is the same group of people that the minimum wage is often offered as a, uh, a mechanism to help. You mentioned as well today that uh, oftentimes uh, the progressive response to a problem and I think this is the minimum wage is a classic example of this too. The pro- progressive response to a problem is to see the problem and uh, do something to yeah. fix it without actually reflecting on what uh, whether whether the thing is a problem in the first place yeah. or what may have caused the problem, what actions they may have taken in the past that would that would lead to the circumstance that they now see as a problem. That's right, and this is a failure to be thorough in your thinking. Uh, you sh- no one should ever simply take a crisis or a problem and assume there was no beginning, that there was no history, that there were no actions or policies before that had some impact, perhaps even to create that problem or crisis. Uh, and so if, if, but if that's your attitude, that we just start with the crisis or the problem and never look at anything before, well, then you might end up promoting the very same policies that put you in the problem in the first place. I am talking with Larry Reed, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. So glad to have you here today, Larry. And, and I, I, there was one thing that was mentioned. It may have may have been in your speech. It may have been the Q and A after your speech uh, today. Uh, but it's 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 sort of a a, a favored policy prescription uh, these days of of progressives, which is the idea of free college education. Yeah. Um, and so, I, can you walk us through? Why that isn't a good idea. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> but 20 minutes, okay? 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, the more something is provided at ever lower cost or free, the less people will appreciate it. Uh, the less they'll work to achieve it, the less they'll value the product itself. That's one of the reasons why free anything is going to have some negative consequences. Uh, and also, it doesn't take into account, the idea of free college does not take into account the extent to which high college costs today are already a result of previous generous policies of government. Uh, government has thrown tons of money over the years at higher education, at education at all levels. Uh, there's no evidence to suggest that it's actually improved outcomes, but there's lots of evidence to suggest that throwing other people's money at it has simply raised the cost of it, uh, pricing some people out of the market altogether. So once again, you have this uh, never-ending problem with progressives where they look at a problem, high college costs, assume that there's no history to it, nothing happened before, nothing we've ever done before could have perhaps contributed to the cause of the problem, and now they want to spend even more money that we don't have, incur even more debt the country can't afford in order to achieve yet another illusory goal of something of value for free. It it also, I think, assumes the idea right off the bat that a universal college education, a college education for everyone, is itself a good idea. And for some people, it might be, but for others, it isn't. That's right. It's the universality of it that is, that, that, is, that is flawed simply because people are different. College isn't the best thing for everybody. Maybe the best thing for a young 19, 20-year-old is to pursue an, a, a vocation or entrepreneurship. But if you dangle free college in front of him, you might sidetrack him for a good four years or more at other people's expense. And it's not automatically true that that's, some, that that's somehow going to benefit him. Yeah, you, look at, you look at the stories that are so common today of 
college graduates who are not able to find work, who are moving back in with their parents who have tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Yep. And the, the response automatically is, well, we should we should get rid of their debt. We should not, not have them accrue that debt in the first place. Yeah. But maybe the way they shouldn't accrue the yeah. debt in the first place is by not going to college. Uh, I, I guess I could go on, too. Uh, well, and don't, don't forget, we've got nearly $19 trillion in national debt. So instead of talking about how do we cut spending, to be talking about massive new programs of free this and free that is, is not the adult thing to do. It's utterly irresponsible. And, and we have a, a, a shameful lack of adults, it seems, sometimes in yep. our political leadership. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm going. I'm looking. There, there are almost four complete pages here of uh, let's let's say there's three full pages of myths that you've sketched out in this book. I, I wonder if if having edited this all together and, and compiled these, is there a particular one of these that you find most pernicious? The, the, is, is there a worst myth of all? I would say it probably would be the myth that surrounds income inequality, ah. simply because it's so huge. It's going to be a, a big factor in next year's presidential election. There are lots of demagogues out there who are using that issue uh, as an excuse to grow government even more, to expand already failed programs. This idea that it's somehow bad uh, for people to have differences in incomes encompasses so many errors. If you're talking about somebody getting rich uh, or somebody else becoming poor because of bad policies of government or special favors for some at the expense of others through government, then I'm listening. I'm in favor of, of, of getting rid of that stuff. But if you've got a genuinely free society, no special advantages, no cronyism uh, and a government out of the way, allowing people to do their, their thing – well, you're still going to have vast differences in income because we're different in terms of the talents that we have. We're different in terms of our willingness to work. Uh, we're different in terms of our savings versus our spending. If you gave everybody the same amount of money tonight, by noon tomorrow, there'd be inequality because some would save it, some would spend it. Uh, so we're not the same. We're not a bunch of robots. Uh, differences in income reflect to a great degree differences in people. A free people are not going to be equal economically, and equal people economically are not going to be free. The only way you could achieve equality is if you put a gun at everybody's head and tell them, you know, don't excel, don't be better, don't be here first, don't come up with an idea that's better than the next one. The thing that strikes me as I, as I look through the, the titles of these um of these chapters in the, in your book, uh, which, as I should remind folks, excuse me, professor, challenging the myths of progressivism. A lot of them seem to grow out of a progressive idea, a basic progressive concept that uh, discounts the individual yes. uh, in favor of uh, a focus on on groups. Yes. Uh, is that that's a very corrosive way to think, is it not? It really is. I have a chapter myself in the book uh, that talks about this uh, snowflake versus snowstorm analogy uh, or comparison. Uh, a progressive sees a snowstorm. Uh, and uh, that's as close as they get. They just see a blizzard of snow. It's just a clump of stuff. But a thoughtful person will look closely and realize, you know, it's we don't have just a blob of white here. We actually have 
individual flakes, and lo and behold, every single one is different from every other flake. No two are identical. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the way we should view society. We're not a blob. We're not part of what uh, the old, one of those Star Trek movies uh, referred to as the Borg. We think differently. We act differently. We're unique and precious, each and every one of us. So we should look at people that way, the way they are, not uh, as some amorphous blob to be pushed around by those in power. And when you look at uh, in in our society right now, one of the one of the major things that we see going on is uh, campus strife right now. And, mm -hmm. and of course, the campus is has been a hotbed of progressive ideas, the college campus in America for for years and years. Yeah. Um, and what we're now seeing, uh, some people are calling it the the, the bitter fruit of yes. all these years of progressive ideological ideological indoctrination. And I, I noticed this week, and I, I really wanted to, to share this with you and get, get your take on it. There, what we've seen over the past couple of months, especially, are groups of students, and this is of course not all students. This isn't a universal thing, mm -hmm. but groups of students who have been issuing. Lists of demands yes. to the administration of their college. And there, I, I found a, an example of a number of these demands. Um, Walter Olson of Cato Institute uh, put together a list of highlights of the demands from various <laughs> colleges. And these are amazing. Um, for instance, at Wesleyan University, they, the students are demanding an anonymous student reporting system for cases of bias, including microaggressions perpetuated or perpetrated, I should say, by faculty and staff. Um, let me see here. Uh, let's find another good one. Uh, at Michigan State, East Lansing, right here in Michigan, right down the road, an increase in tenure stream faculty whose research specializes in black queer studies, hip-hop studies, and decolonial theory, among other yeah. things. And my personal favorite here from uh, Guilford College, this, this, is a, this amazes me that this mm -hmm. actually happened. Uh, the students are demanding one confession of racism by a faculty member every week. Uh. Um how did we get to this point? Uh, it, it, yeah. you, you talk about, you talked about, and I, I guess we can link it to this. You talked about the decline of character yes. in our country. Are the, is is this demand culture that's uh, that's cropped up here? Is this an example of a decline in character? It sure is, absolutely. Uh, when you start to uh, place demands upon other people because you're offended by uh, nothing. Or, or, or minor things, because you don't want to deal with life as it is. Um, I think you've, you've crossed the line. A people of, uh, who lack character will tend to want to use force, will call the cops for almost any reason. And that's what the politically correct crowd is actually doing. I think it is a, a sign of a fall or a decline in the appreciation of things like individual liberty, freedoms of speech and assembly and press. Uh, the kind of environment that they want to set up is reminiscent of the Khmer Rouge in, in communist Cambodia in the late uh, 70s, where uh, uh, the thought police uh, we're regulating everything that they could uh, catch anybody thinking or saying. It's reminiscent of George Orwell's 1984. Uh, but the sad thing is, I don't think the, the students who are making these demands have the slightest knowledge of uh, either of those two things I just mentioned, of the Khmer Rouge communist experience in Cambodia, nor do they understand the warnings from George Orwell in his famous book 1984. And yet they would impose these awful things uh, upon others. It, it is a sign of a fall in character, no question. Well, when we see them dragging professors out into the streets, shaving their heads and hanging signs denouncing themselves around their neck, we'll know we're really in trouble. I mean, yeah. it, we've, I've heard these these protesters referred to basically as little Maoists. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to see this going on. It, 
What what hope is there for the campus, though? You you mentioned a little bit about uh, you spend some time around campuses. You you know a lot of folks on college campuses across uh, the United States. Do you see reason for hope? I do. And on the one hand, there's no question that political correctness and its excesses uh, are uh, at a high point. Uh, I think and I hope it's at the, uh, the high watermark uh, but we'll see over time. But at the same time, you see those things getting so much attention in the news. On the good side, there are more professors in more departments at more universities uh, than at any time in my lifetime uh, who support the institutions that made Western civilization possible, who endorse and, and advocate things like individual liberty and market economics. Uh, they don't always get the headlines. They're quiet. Uh, they're not out in the streets protesting, but they're greater in number than ever before. And at the same time, we have a growing alternative to the bricks and mortar typical university arrangement. More and more people who are uh, pursuing alternatives to the traditional four-year college degree, uh, whether it be uh, earning degrees or the equivalent through private institutions like one called Praxis now that's really growing, P-R-A-X-I-S or whether it's people simply opting for other self-taught online learning experiences and going into business. Um, I mean, there are a lot of alternatives to the traditional four-year bricks-and-mortar university that offer us a lot of hope. Yeah, I, I look at this as a, as a man with uh, some young children, elementary school-age children. You know, you look down the road and think, oh, they're going to want to go to college someday. They're going to want to do this. And uh, I, I often think of, uh, I don't know if you read Instapundit uh, at all. Occasionally. But Glenn, Glenn Reynolds, mm-hmm. uh, who's a law professor at the University of T- Tennessee and writes the Instapundit blog, he talks a lot about the higher education bubble uh-huh. uh, that exists and uh, that what we're seeing now are signs that the whole thing is starting to collapse. Yes. And it, it's interesting that uh, uh, one of the things you'll see is is how these old old sorts of uh, educational institutions, the, the long-time traditional institutions, really oppose yeah. those private or Internet options unless they're the ones delivering it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's essentially because they want to use the, the, the force of government mm-hmm. to stop competition again. That's right. And that's not where young people are these days, for the most part. They are excited about opportunities and competition, and they're excited about things like Uber and Airbnb and all these opportunities through uh, technology. Technology to expand and empower uh, people, expand their rights and their abilities and, and empower them uh, with opportunities. I don't think this hidebound, monopolistic approach uh, is going to fly with uh, today's younger generations. It is going to be very interesting to see what happens in the coming uh, decade, I think, uh, with education. Uh, Larry, you're the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Tell us a little bit about what FEE does. I encourage everybody, Mark, to visit our website where they can learn a great deal more. That is easy to remember. It's FEE, F-E-E dot org. There you'll see that we have daily fresh content on the website, generating about 6 million visitors every year. Uh, Content that's uh, not only uh, deeply philosophical in nature, advancing ideas of liberty and private enterprise and personal character, but also is frequently focused on current issues. We hold seminars for high school and college students all over the country and occasionally abroad. Uh, During the course of the academic year, we're hosting uh, single presentations or half-day programs, full-day programs at colleges and uh, high schools all across the country. 
we have a new course called The Economics of Entrepreneurship that's available free for the download that uh, homeschool parents or even just interested individuals who want to learn more about economics and entrepreneurship can access at no charge. Uh, we're a, 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 a think tank, you might say, that focuses on advancing ideas of liberty and character, especially among high school and college students, so that they come away educated, inspired, and connected with others who think uh, in a similar fashion. That's fee.org. Uh, and fee, uh, really one of the, the long-standing members of the Movement for Liberty, probably one of the oldest. Uh, we are the oldest. The, the oldest yeah. think tank in this movement uh, in, in America and, and a great organization. Larry, it's been a pleasure to have you here today at Acton. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you for taking time to be on Radio Free Acton today. It's been my pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. And with that, we bring another edition of Radio Free Acton to a close. I want to thank uh, Larry Reed for taking the time to join me in the Acton studios for Radio Free Acton. He's a gentleman uh, from start to finish, a great guy, easy to talk to, and uh, it was fantastic having him here at the Acton Institute. We'll be posting his uh, Acton Lecture Series lecture. Uh, The book, of course, is called Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. You can buy that, of course, in the Fee Bookstore. It's also available at Amazon and other uh, reputable booksellers uh, across the nation. Uh, Again, Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. A great book, and I'd encourage you to pick up a copy. Thanks as well to Fee and the Mackinac Center for helping us uh, bring uh, Larry Reed to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Fee, of course, the Foundation for Economic Education. You can find them online at fee.org, F-E-E.org, and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, Michigan. One of the best, if not the best, state policy think tanks in the nation. Uh, you can find them online at Mackinac.org. M-A-C-K-I-N-A-C dot org. That's our podcast for today, folks. We hope you're having a wonderful Christmas season, and we will talk to you next time when we bring you another edition of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Have a good one, everybody.